welcome to The Graduates, a radio show dedicated to graduate student research here at Berkeley. My name is Stephanie Gerson. I'm a graduate student myself, and I'll be your hostess for the show here on KALX Berkeley. So today I'm talking to Jeff Silverman, a PhD student in astronomy. So welcome, Jeff. Hi. Thank you. And we're going to be talking about supernova. So to start out, can you tell us what supernova what a supernova is? So supernovae are massive uh, exploding stars. At the end of their life, a massive star will collapse in on itself and then explode in one of the biggest explosions in the universe. Ah, and I know that you're really excited about supernovae, <laughs> and we all uh, should be. So let's talk about why. Uh, one of the reasons is that they disperse elements into the universe. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so heavy elements, um, things like carbon, oxygen, nitrogen, are cooked up inside stars, and the only way to get them out of these stars into the interstellar space is by these supernova explosions. And as the star explodes, all the stuff that was in it gets kind of blown out into space, and then that stuff can collapse to form new generations of stars, like our sun and planets and people. Ah, so they're like element recyclers? Yeah, exactly right, exactly right. Um and well, actually, before, I wonder, though, how long do they spend exploding relative to the lifetime of a star? So the stars that explode, uh, many of the stars that explode as supernovae are around for 10 million to 100 million years. And the explosion itself takes minutes. <gasps> really? So the explosion itself only takes minutes. We can track the wow. afterglow of the explosion and observe it for uh, months to years, to a couple of years even. Uh -huh. um, but the explosion physically itself takes a couple of minutes. Wow, it's so fast. Yeah. <laughs> wow, so the death to rebirth is just really a little millisecond relative to the lifetime of the entire star. The explosion part, yeah. To yeah. collapse and form a new star, that definitely takes some time. Yeah. But getting those elements out of there, yeah, is not very long. Huh. Okay, and um, and I know that... So besides the fact that they disperse elements like carbon and oxygen, uh, I know that they disperse heavier elements. So can you talk about those specifically? Yeah, so besides this stuff that's cooked up in stars, there's even heavier elements, gold, silver, uranium, etc. Um, and the only way that you can form that in the universe is in these explosions themselves. There's so much energy in the explosion that you can form these heavier elements. And that's the only way we know of to, to naturally form these things. Uh -huh. So if you like, you know, copper in your electronics uh -huh. and gold jewelry, think a supernova. Uh -huh. Okay, so now we're all excited about supernova. But <laughs> so how, how, but these gold and all the, how come they end up being so uh, dispersed? Is it because of their physical property? Or is there such a thing as a gold planet? Somewhere? So probably not. Uh, <laughs> they're they're tiny fractions of the overall amount of stuff in the universe. The uh -huh. universe is ninety eight percent hydrogen, uh -huh. um, with a bunch of helium and then a smattering of other stuff. So there's really very little percentage wise of gold and copper and uh -huh. such. Um, so when you form a solar system, it's going to be mostly hydrogen, a little helium, and then a smattering of this other stuff. But there is enough carbon to make humans and iron to make planets and rocks mm -hmm. and stuff. But do you think there is a possibility of there being a gold planet out there? Probably not, no. uh, but it would be Darn. cool. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and another reason we should be excited about supernova is that you can use them to measure the expansion history of the universe. 
So first, what does that mean, the expansion history of the universe? Yeah, yeah. Um, so since the 20s, we've known that the universe is expanding. And so since supernovae are so bright, we can see them clear halfway across the universe, literally. And so we can see them to great distances. And by using nearby supernovae versus these really far ones and comparing properties and how bright they appear, et cetera, we can track what the universe's expansion has been doing for the past 10 billion some odd years. Mm -hmm. And how do you use supernovae to do that? So we can figure out their distance um, depending on how bright certain types of supernovae appear to us on Earth. And then using a completely independent measure, we can figure out how fast they're expanding away from us. And by comparing the speed to the distance, you can actually track what the universe is doing. Okay. And I know that by using supernova like this, that's how dark energy was discovered. So can you talk about that? Yeah. So actually, my advisor, Professor Alex Filipenko, was on one of the teams that discovered this uh -huh. uh, in the late 90s. When they compared this distance to velocity, they found that the universe was actually accelerating in its expansion. The expansion was speeding up, um, which doesn't make any sense because uh, galaxies and stars have gravity. It should be pulling on each other and slowing down the expansion. Huh. So there has to be some anti-gravity force in the universe uh -huh. pushing everything away from each other faster and faster against gravity. And so scientists have termed this dark energy, and tons of research is going into what the heck it is. Uh -huh. So dark energy is, is like a black box, like a, a, hence the name <laughs> dark energy. But the only way that you know about it is by its effect on other things. Right, exactly. Yeah. We have no direct You just see the stuff. effects of something. Right, okay. right, exactly. What kinds of things do you look at in order to learn about? dark energy then? So we observe uh, a certain type of supernova called a type 1A. And what we'll do oftentimes is take a spectrum of it where we break up the light from the supernova into its wavelengths and see how bright it is at different wavelengths. And from that, we should be able to tell how fast it's going away from us. And from figuring out how bright it is, we can tell a pretty good estimate of the distance. And so that's where we do this comparison. And we try to do it for as many objects as possible, as far away as possible, and try and figure out the details of what this expansion is doing. Uh-huh. So dark energy is like the missing variable in the equation so that that's, the equation works. So that's absolutely right. That actually came from Einstein in the early 20th century. He huh. put in a variable to make his equations work <laughs> and said it was his biggest blunder. He said it was stupid and he shouldn't have put it there. And it turns out it was right ah. and it was dark energy. So that's oh, actually a perfect explanation. Hmm. All right. Um, so if you're just joining us, you're listening to The Graduates on Calix. I'm talking today with Jeff Silverman from Astronomy about supernovae. Uh, so now getting into the juicy stuff, do you think that uh, you just, yeah, I mentioned this a little bit, but do you think that the universe has been expanding at the same or accelerating at the same rate since the Big Bang, or has the acceleration rate fluctuated? So that's actually a cutting-edge research question, is what is this dark energy? Is it changing with time? Is it constant throughout the history of the universe? Mm -hmm. um, the indication since the late 90s has been that it's been constant throughout the history of the universe. We're still not totally convinced it's exactly constant, mm -hmm. but it probably is. But the expansion has changed. It was decelerating for a while because of gravity and then started to accelerate at some point in a few billion years ago because of this dark energy. Okay. And a question you probably get all the time. From what I understand, there are three possibilities. Either the universe is going to keep on expanding until 
there's no energy to continue expanding, and then the universe will just stagnate, or uh, the universe will expand until some critical threshold, and then start contracting again until it's pre-Big Bang state, or it will expand and contract, and then, you know, Big Bang all over again, in which case we could be the billionth lifetime of the universe. So do you have a take on this? Yeah. So, you know, before the late 90s, this was a really big question. But once dark energy was on the scene and it's been confirmed a bunch of different ways, it seems like dark energy is going to rule forever. We're going to keep expanding. We're going to keep accelerating. And it may be that eventually we'll accelerate and expand so much that we won't see anything else because everything will be so far away from us. Oh, But it will definitely keep expanding. So it'll kind of get to its big bang pre-Big Bang moment by just continuing to expand until there's it's so dispersed that there's almost nothing anymore all over again? That's an interesting way to think about it. Um, it's kind of, in some ways it's similar, like you pointed out. In some ways it's opposite, where the Big Bang was a tiny point that contained everything with right. infinite density, right. whereas if you expand forever, you have right. zero density if you expand to an infinite size or some gigantic right. size. But I guess from the perspective of someone just hanging out and looking at the situation, it looks like nothing. That's true. You wouldn't see any stars in the night sky. Mm. You wouldn't see any galaxies. Hmm. Uh, So let's talk about your methods, because uh, I know that you use telescopes. Uh, So can you tell us about them? Uh, Yeah. So I personally use a couple of telescopes uh, regularly, one down outside San Jose and another on the big island of Hawaii. Um, which is a nice perk of the job yeah, going out there. <laughs> sounds nice. Do you ever get to take friends with you? Uh, I get to take astronomy friends who are also working. Ah. But <laughs> that's the best I've gotten so far. Uh-huh. And how often, how often are you hanging out with the telescopes? How often do you go to Hawaii? So Hawaii we get about, I'll go about three to four times a semester. Um, and my next trip is actually at the end of April. Ah. So that'll be fun. Um, but then the one in San Jose, our group uses about three nights a month. And so I'll participate in one out of three of those or so. And you spend the night there? Uh, we used to regularly, Slumber but now, party at yeah, the telescope? basically that's what it was. I mean, they've got little dorms up there, uh-huh. but recently we installed a, a remote observing, um, set up in the basement of Campbell Hall. Huh. And so now we can go down there, we can log in, and we see all the same computer screens we see up there. We have a little teleconference, photoconference thing with wow. the, the summit and can talk to the operators. Yeah. And so we don't even have to leave the comfort of our own building now. It's like a teletelescope. It is, indeed. <laughs> so it, is that accessible in other places around the world? Are other people logging into that one telescope as well? Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's the... The observatory is Lick Observatory, and it's uh, run by the UCs. So San Diego, L.A., Irvine, Santa Cruz, they all have setups that are similar. What about, do you use the telescope here at Berkeley? So not for research. Mm -hmm. That's more uh, public outreach for the Astro 10 class, um, the intro class. Uh, and people we'll have like star us. parties. Yeah, I mean, you know, anybody that wants to come up and look, just oh, let really? us know. <laughs> I like showing people stuff. Okay. In it. Uh, so, yeah, what's it like? I know that the Hawaii, the telescope in Hawaii is the largest optical telescope in the world. Yep. So, what's it like to look through the largest optical telescope in the world? Uh, it, it's impressive. So, you know, astronomers don't really look through telescopes. We've got digital cameras on the back of the telescope that takes a picture and sends it to a laptop, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm looking at computer screens all night long. Wow. But it is pretty impressive 
you know, when you go outside and you can see a ton of stars, but you can see oh so many more in mm -hmm. the telescope um, or things that are, you know, extremely faint or things that are hundreds of millions of light years away and you take a 20 second digital camera exposure and you're like, oh, there's a beautiful galaxy. Mm. So that's did pretty you, impressive. Uh, did you dream of doing this when you were younger? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I've been into the whole astronomy space thing since I was very little. <laughs> did you go to space camp? I did go to space camp, oh. yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, okay, so you use the telescopes to gather data and you mentioned this a little earlier too. Uh, I know that you gather spectral data and not photometry. So what's the difference first? So photometry is basically you take a digital picture of the sky and using various computer codes, et cetera, uh, measure the brightness of each of the objects in your picture, supernova, star, galaxy, whatever it is. And since these are explosions, the supernovae, they get brighter, they get to a peak brightness, and then they start to fade away. Um, and so by doing photometry, you can track that brightness change, and that gives us a lot of information about what's going on in the explosion. What I do is uh, get spectral data, which uh, I mentioned briefly before, is we take the light from these objects, break it into each little wavelength, and then we can basically make a plot of brightness versus wavelength. And mm. that tells us a lot about how hot the explosion is, how much energy there is, what elements are in it, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So, but come on, you you take photos too, right, for yourself? Very, very rarely. Really? Uh, occasionally. Not even to bring home? So, you know, telescope time is expensive. Uh, On the Hawaii telescopes, it's a dollar a second to run. So wow. you take a two-second exposure. It's like, oh, that's a couple of bucks. <laughs> wow. But is that because of the whoever is charging you or is it just really expensive to keep it on because of the power that it uses what's the ex what's where's the so cost it's coming from it's a supply and demand kind of thing the uh. telescopes are in such high demand that it's uh. owned by the ucs and caltech but they can sell the time effectively for a uh -huh, dollar right, a second right, right. the supply and demand of telescope time indeed hmm. <laughs> so you can gather lots of information from these spectral plots, right? The heat of the explosion, the energy of the explosion, etc. But what are you specifically looking for in the spectral data for your own work? So for my own work, uh, I'm probably going to start looking at uh, comparing a bunch of objects, a bunch of supernovae that are very close by that we have lots of these spectra for at many different times in the lifetime of the supernova. But when you say you're looking at them, if they only last minutes, you're just, you're looking at the post radiation? Right. So, so the explosion itself only lasts minutes, but okay. we can, we can observe the light from it okay. for months, usually okay. to okay. years even. Uh -huh. So by comparing different times of when we take uh, an observation of a supernova and many different kinds of supernovae, um, I'm hoping to kind of figure out a, another way to to classify them effectively. Right now, we're kind of just throwing them into these big bins of they look like this or that, and they're not very scientific, honestly. Uh -huh. um, they're kind of holdovers from the old days. And now we can say a lot more about, you know, what's, go what's making them look different. You know, what is the physics behind the explosion and the stars that are exploding that make them different? And so that's what I'd like to do with this data, since we can get all this information from the spectra. Uh -huh. And that will teach you more about the expansion history of the universe if you if you find correlations that make sense between what it looks like on the spectral plot and 
I don't know what else, something else? Yeah, yeah, exactly right. If we can find some new correlation, you know, with something in the spectrum and maybe how bright it is okay. or how quickly it brightens or fades away, then, yeah, that can give us more accurate details about the expansion history of the universe or even, you know, the explosion mechanism, how these stars explode, which kinds of stars explode. Uh-huh. We're not real sure about some of that stuff. Uh-huh, so that you can look at the supernovae and read it like a like a history book? Yeah, yeah. In some sense, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I know that your group also works on, and I quote, supernovae that are cool or weird. <laughs> so if you were a supernova, what would make you qualify as cool or weird? So I said we have these, you know, kind of big bins that we throw supernovae into. This is, you know. Oh, cool weird is one of them? Cool weird is one of them. <laughs> okay. You know, it doesn't quite belong in one. Or we have some that go in one bin and then a month later turn into a different kind Uh and so you know trying to explain that um is schizophrenic one of the things yeah yeah you know definitely there's there's ones with uh, some real personality disorders (laughs) i think um and yeah just you know really close by ones really bright ones that are you know much more energetic than normal um sometimes they might be associated with other uh, astronomical phenomena gamma ray bursts is is one of the things that is a separate topic in astronomy, but occasionally they happen at the exact same point at the exact same time, so uh-huh. maybe they're related somehow. Uh-huh. So those would classify as interesting or weird. Okay, so, and how do you find them? Do you scan Do you scan the skies looking for cool-slash-weird supernova, or do you use what you know in order to guess where cool-slash-weird supernovae would be? Uh, so it's really hard to predict a cool slash weird supernova. Um, we do actually have a pretty big campaign to find all kinds of supernovae. Well, maybe um, they hang out together. It's possible right. that maybe the environments are similar. That's true. Uh, <laughs> our campaign doesn't do that specifically. We look at a bunch of different galaxies every night looking for supernovae, and some of them do come up bizarre, and some of them come up run-of-the-mill, and we say, okay, we'll take some data and not be super excited about it. <laughs> uh-huh. And I know that you can buy stars, so can you also buy... Supernova? Is there some kind of territorialization <laughs> where UC Berkeley gets the cool, weird ones and, and MIT has the, the geeky, artsy <laughs> supernova or something? No. Not so much. Uh, it's, it's actually a pretty big community around the world, and we do split yeah. up stuff, and you know, you'll collaborate with someone one time and then be in direct competition the next time a weird one comes up. Ah. Um, but as far as the naming goes, there is an official naming that goes down for each one. But internally, everybody's group can name it whatever they want. Ah. So I'm actually, there was a collaboration I was on for a while where the acronym was SHOES, and I cannot <laughs> I cannot remember what it stands for, but they named every supernova they found after a shoe. Oh. So there was Nike, Adidas, Moccasin, Stiletto. Oh. It was very weird to be observing. Wait, but the, but Nike things. is a brand and Moccasin is a type of shoe. So, so they so. started with the types of shoes, and then I think they started oh, running the sub, out, and so sub. they were okay. yeah, they're starting to use whatever they could related to shoes. Huh. But you obviously <laughs> want to be naming them you know the same or not naming the same ones differently so that you can communicate right right so this is why we have the the main uh classification and naming scheme that everyone will use in papers and publications but internally people like to use their own stuff Uh, what have you named no we're boring we use we use just like the galaxy they're in basically Uh, yeah there's a group actually at uh, university of texas austin cool slash weird ones yeah pretty much the the university of texas austin group actually uses star wars and star trek names Uh. which is pretty geeky i like that all right so we will be right back on next week's show, I'll be talking to Anand Kulkarni, a PhD student from the Department of Industrial Engineering and Operations Research, about using the wisdom of crowds to make robots more intelligent. 
So please join me for The Graduates every Monday from 12 to 12.30 on CalEx. And I know the show has veered towards the technical lately. I'm aware of that. And I'm trying to veer in different directions, but there's not always enough lead time to control the chronology of interviews. That said, if you have ideas for topics, people I should interview, please let us know. And you can do that on our Facebook page. Search for The Graduates Calex in quotes on facebook.com. You can suggest topic ideas or even suggest yourself as a guest. So don't be shy. That's The Graduates Calex on Facebook. Welcome back. Today I'm talking to Jeff Silverman about Supernovae. So let's talk about some of your results. I know that you recently published a paper about the largest known stellar mass black hole. Yep. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Can you talk about that? Yeah. So a group at Harvard recently, or I guess not too recently, October, November time, uh, published a paper saying they had found the largest stellar mass black hole. So the largest black hole that came from a massive star that collapsed, turned into a supernova, and left behind a black hole. Huh. Um, they had only a few data points, and it wasn't very convincing data. And so uh, Professor Filipenko and I were out in Hawaii, and we decided to take a look at this thing and see what we could say about it. Sure enough, they got the answer right. We got a lot of great data out in Hawaii on it and very convincingly showed that there is a black hole that's about 34 times the mass of the sun. Wow. Uh, so after, after stars explode, they form a black hole? That's one thing they can do. They can explode and not leave anything. They could explode and leave something called a neutron star. Uh, that's a very dense stellar remnant. Or some of them, the most massive ones, can explode and leave behind a black hole. Yeah. And how fast does that happen? So it's after it's the mi after the minutes of explosion yeah, and months so, of it's just well within forming? minutes it's formed a black hole in the center probably. And so then within this your other lifetime stuff. or within while even while you're at Berkeley, you can this something like this could could happen. Yeah. A star could explode and then form a black hole. While you're doing your PhD. Oh, yeah, tons of them. But then again, people have. do their PhDs for well. a long time. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> uh, so, but I find that kind of interesting because um, with supernovae, so there's an explosion and then a dispersion of, of elements, but then the black hole, does it, does it kind of draw them all back in all over again? Does it end up bringing in the things that it exploded outwards? So some of it, yeah. There's, there's something called fallback, which where the inner layers of this explosion will maybe blow out for a little bit and then fall back into this, the uh, black hole or even fall back onto this neutron star thing if one's there. But the outer layers have enough energy they have yeah. that they can get away from the gravitational pull of uh -huh. whatever's left behind. And that's what kind of floats out into space. Yeah, because that's the stuff to make new stuff out exactly, of. Exactly, exactly. Right. And it, the stuff that, that shoots out further is it is it fun, is it different in any physical way from whatever comes back in, or is it just a mixture of everything? Uh, that's actually a really good question that people are working on. What's the level of mixing between these levels uh, between these different parts of the star? Usually, the outermost layers will get the most energetic kick because they're furthest from where all the gravity is in the center. Mm. Um, they'll usually consist more of hydrogen and helium, the lighter stuff that's uh -huh. usually found in the outsides of stars. But it's still a very open question on how much mixing with the heavier stuff inside goes back and forth. And part of, you know, spectra observations can, can tell us a little bit more about that. Uh-huh. Okay, so I, I'm actually still a little confused about a black hole. How, how can a black hole have mass or 
That's all it is. It's just a really compact mass. That's all a black hole. Okay, is. it's just oh, and and the and so it's no different than. But what makes it different from? Why do we call it a hole and not a mass? I mean, hole kind of implies. It's a bad name. Oh, really? <laughs> it's it's not a very accurate name. If you took the sun and replaced it with a black hole that weighed the exact same, the Earth would orbit perfectly normally. It uh. would be dark out, but we would orbit perfectly fine. We wouldn't just get sucked in like into a vacuum cleaner. So it has mass. Uh-huh. They're very dense and small. Okay. But you can think of it as just a very dense, small star that's not shining. Okay, okay. That's That's one way to look at it. And it doesn't shine. Because the light can't escape. It's so dense that even oh. the light can't get out of it. Oh, okay. From the gravity. And and is there I mean, is there just a total continuum in between? Or is it really pretty distinct? You between. know, whether you're a dim star or a dim, dense star or a black hole? Um People don't really know. They're, these neutron stars are, are what a dim, dense star would be if it's not quite a black hole. Mm-hmm. Um, but the dividing line between those two is a little fuzzy. We just don't know enough physics, actually, to understand where that dividing line really is and what kind of trans, you know, transfers between the two. Okay, so I'm curious. How does looking at supernovae through these huge telescopes and thinking about <laughs> these gargantuan questions about universe expansion, uh, so how does that show up in the way that you, you know, wander through your life? Do you have less uh, existential crises because <laughs> you just see your problems within the context of bigger things? <laughs> uh, a little bit, a little bit, you know. If you have a bad day and you go home and you think, oh, that wasn't great, but you think about, oh, this huge universe out there and mm. it doesn't matter, it's all going to rip itself apart or expand forever. <laughs> My problems don't seem so bad. Uh, kind of. <laughs> so you, so astronomy is a, is a philosophy of, of life or just as a way of moving through life? I think so. I, I definitely think a lot of the, the grad students in our department would, would agree with that. So you guys around midterms and finals are just generally not as stressed out as the rest of the academic part? Yeah, I think so. I think in general we're <laughs> a kind of laid-back department. Huh. Okay, so last question. So in your bio on your webpage, uh, you know, you write about what you've been up to. And then for your future, you have some hypertext that says, who knows? And it leads to a site called chimpcollaboratory.org. So what do chimpanzees have to do with your future? Or or does this have to do with the uh, universe contracting all over again? Uh, the short answer is absolutely nothing. Uh-huh. I, I think chimps are awesome. I think a good, if I ever got out of astronomy, I would want to do some kind of primate research kind of thing uh. and, you know, hang out with chimps. They seem fun. Uh. That's really all it is. Okay. Okay, great. Well, it's been stellar talking to you, Jeff. <laughs> so if you'd like to keep updated on Jeff's future and what it has to do with chimps, you can visit his website, which also has, yes, some beautiful photographs of supernovae at astro.berkeley.edu slash tilde J Silv. That's tilde J-S-I-L-V. I also wanted to make a plug for an upcoming grad student event. Well, I should say by grad students for everyone. So the Department of Environmental Science, Policy, and Management is hosting its annual Graduate Research Symposium, featuring talks and posters by graduates in the department. And this year's headliner will be famed ecologist 
Dr. David Wilco from Princeton University speaking on Muddy Boots and Bloody Hands, Should Scientists Engage in Policy Battles? Hmm. So this is Saturday, May 3rd from 9.30 to 4.30, and not only will this be a fascinating event, but it's free and there will be free food, but you have to register, uh, and in order to do so, go to the ESPM Department's website, that's ESPM.berkeley.edu, and click on Graduate Research. So once again, that's the Department of Environmental Science Policy and Management, They're having their graduate research symposium on Saturday, May 3rd. And to register, go to espm.berkeley.edu and click on graduate research. You've been listening to The Graduates, a radio show dedicated to graduate student research on KALX Berkeley. I am proud to announce that we are on iTunes University now. This is the first CalX podcast ever. So if Mondays at Noon doesn't always work for you, then subscribe to our podcast, go to the iTunes store, and search for CalEx. You'll find all past interviews uh, in case you missed any or you just want to listen to them again. Background music for the show was produced by Chris Peck. You can check him out at myspace.com slash chrispeck. My name is Stephanie Gerson. Please visit us on Facebook. Search for The Graduates, Calex in Quotes, and join me next Monday from 12 to 12.30.